0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Romans 8 uh, verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, alright, well I'm going to kick off
1: first with uh, praying, so I'd love you to join me, I will pop this guy down here, let's pray. Our heavenly and good, good Father, we just want to thank you, thank you for your word, thank you for giving us access to you, Lord, that we can have a relationship with you. God, I pray that as we look at these verses today, God, that your spirit be ministering to our hearts revealing to us truth that maybe we weren't aware of or maybe that we just need to hear now. Be reminded of, Lord. God, I pray that you move powerfully through this room and in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts, Lord. Pray that you speak today and that we hear. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to get deep and I'm going to get real from the very beginning. So the first question I want to start off with is, have you ever had that moment where you realize that perhaps most of the things, if not all the things in your life that you, that you cling to, that you find your identity in, that you find your assurance in, are temporary. They could be taken away in a moment. The things that we, we ground ourselves in for assurance and for security are so transient. I mean, it's terrifying. There was one, we it happened to me once where I was living in London. Mel and I moved there when we had no kids. Ah, oh, blessed days. Um, no, no, I love them. Um, but we'd moved to London in 2014 and we had this grand plan. We'd spent three months traveling. We had this grand plan to, to get there, get our jobs. I was nursing, Mel's dietitian. We thought we will just get our registrations all sorted. We'd started the process before moving to London. And um, what happened was, we arrived in London and we arrived to a letter that essentially said, my application for registration had been denied, and we just hadn't heard anything about MELS. So we thought, okay, this is all right. Um but we were living with my cousin who we didn't know. We'd just played the family card and moved in with them. And they essentially said, You've got two weeks with us and then you have to move out. Um so it was lovely, right? But um so we had we had no jobs, we had no family, we had no friends, we had no church. And we were running out of money. So we did what every normal person does when they have no money. We went out for dinner. Um, and as we were walking home, um, there was a garden bed, and Mel decided to go the normal way and follow the path. I thought I'd cut across the path, uh, cut across the garden bed. And as I did that, I tripped and fell into this bush. Anyway, I must have been laying there for a while, because eventually Mel came over to see if I was okay. And when she found me, I was sobbing. Absolutely broken. Because in that moment, I'd seen behind my emotional defenses and seen that everything that I clung to for assurance was nowhere to be seen. All my fears and insecurities had just come down on me all at once, and I was thinking, how are we going to survive here? Are we going to have to go home failures? Or are we going to move into a house with, you know, a share house with nine other people, rat infested? We actually visited one where they were turning the lounge room. It was a three-bedroom home, uh, apartment, sorry, that they had nine people living in. They they were turning, the, in the process of turning the lounge room into another bedroom so they could fit another one or two people. And then I started thinking, if, if I don't have a job, then who am I? And what will Mel think of me? You know, all these fears of, will she actually stay with me? Does she love me? And to be honest with you, my my personal relationship with God was pretty terrible at the time. See, outside of Mel, all the things that made me who I was, that gave me assurance, that gave me security, my family, my friends, sport, my life back home in Australia, was gone. My assurance in tatters. Like, the reality is that we we live in a broken world, right? It's filled with disappointment, heartache, uncertainty, and doubt. Did you know one in nine people suffer from anxiety disorders? I think that's because part of the reason is because we're so dependent on the undependable. So the underlying question is, is there anything that I can depend on? What in the world can I find lasting assurance, not temporary assurance, but lasting assurance that I can know that tomorrow when I wake up, will still give me assurance, will still be there? There was a guy called Reverend Charles, and he released a song, don't think it was a top hit, but said, I can depend on God. But can we? I mean, we live in this agnostic culture, right, where where certainty is frowned upon, where Everything is, is um relative and nothing's absolute, let alone your faith, let alone our assurance in our salvation. And so when it comes to our assurance in God, or more specifically, our assurance in our salvation, claiming to have this assurance, this complete and absolute assurance, well, it's arrogance. Right? But in the world standard, it's arrogance. Who are we to claim this? Who we to believe that what we believe is true and what everyone else believes is wrong? You know, we, we know, historically, the world knows that there was a man named Jesus who lived, who died. We believe he rose again. But then I think sometimes the culture of the world impacts on our way of thinking. And so emotionally and perhaps intellectually, we start to question the reality of what, if Jesus rose, actually rose from the dead. I mean, do we have the right to be 100% certain just like everything in the world, world that, is, that is uncertain and questionable, our assurance in God becomes uncertain. Our assurance in our salvation becomes questionable at best. Now, we've had Ray Gilear speaking to us this weekend or yesterday, and so I stole a bit from his book, um, try and line up a bit. And so he in his book, From Here to Eternity, he actually interviews um, people from his church, asking them what makes them doubt their salvation. And here's four of the ones that um, I thought that stood out to me. So one person said, I live with the constant fear of deceiving myself that I'm really a child of God. Another said, How many times will God forgive my repeated sin? I fear there must be a limit. If my works are evidence of my faith, then how many works are required and of what type? I fear that I may have put my faith in my works and not in Jesus. Jesus. I don't know about you, but several of these ring true for my life. I remember when I was younger being so, so scared. I'd I'd struggle to sleep. I'd lay awake thinking, do I have assurance? Maybe there's something more I need to do. Maybe I hadn't asked for forgiveness for my most recent sin. Do I actually believe what I know or is it all just head knowledge? Is Is it just my parents' faith? Is it just the popular opinion of the people I hang around See, I had so many doubts. So how can we know? How can we know that when everything else is failing, that our salvation is secure? Or is our salvation just as transient and unreliable as everything else in the world? Is God's love just a temporary thing that could be snatched away at any moment? You see, it's essential that we understand why we believe what we believe. Otherwise, our lives are filled with doubt, insecurity, and fear. So today I want to explore how it's actually the things of this world that leave us feeling fearful and doubtful and insecure, but in God we have total assurance. Romans 8, Paul wants us to know beyond a doubt That when it comes to our assurance in God, when it comes to our salvation and what Jesus has done for us, that nothing can change our position in Christ. No one, not anything can undo his work. Our salvation is secure. Uh, An old guy called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the great theme of chapter 8 is not sanctification. Now, that's a word we're going to explore a bit later, but the great theme of chapter 8 is the security of the Christian. So how does chapter 8 give us security? How does it assure us? As you would have noticed, it is a huge passage. Yesterday we did 22 verses in two sessions. Today we're doing 17 verses in one. So strap yourselves in. We're in for about an hour and a half. Um, no, we're not we're not, we're not. we're not. It's like an hour and 15. Um, uh, but look, so there's a lot here. And so I'm going to break it down for us. I find that's easier for me, breaking it down. So I'm breaking it down into three parts. So we have complete assurance in our salvation because, of one, of what Christ has done. We have complete, number two, we have complete assurance in our salvation because of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And part three, we have complete assurance in our salvation because uh, we are beloved children of God. So part one, we have complete assurance in what Christ has done. Let's unpack this a bit. So basically the first four verses of Romans, um, of Romans eight, sorry, Paul's recapping or summarizing what he said in the previous seven chapters. You see, just by simply saying in verse one, there is now no condemnation means that we were once under condemn- condemnation. We know this, right? We know all of humanity is guilty of sin, of, of wronging or turning our backs on God. In fact, it's our nature. Now we we read in chapter five how how sin came into the world through Adam and now it's part of who we are and so it's impossible for us to obey God. God reveals this. He he gave he gave Israel our law. It, it gave Israel the law and it's like a good and perfect law. Arnaldo took us through it in chapter seven, and so it becomes super clear that when we fail in our lives and when we look at the lives of the people before us through Scripture how horribly unable we are to live godly lives, or as Paul says, righteous lives. And this is why legalism doesn't work. This is why doing things to prove ourselves doesn't work. Legalism just reveals our sin. It reveals how far we've fallen. It's this horribly grim picture. And because of our sin, we're condemned to die. But God, knowing this, in his love and mercy, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to stretch out his arms and die for us. He takes the price that we were meant to pay. He pays the price that we were meant to pay. He takes our sin. He removes us from out of condemnation. And he actually brings us into this forgiven, sinless state before God. So God achieves through Jesus what we've been trying to do, what people before us have been trying to do, by saying, you know, when people say, oh, like I've done enough. But no. Jesus does what we couldn't do. And that's why Paul kicks off with these 13 incredible words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. These are incredible words. We are no longer under the consequences of sin. We are no longer destined for death. We are no longer destined to life without relationship, without our creator. We've been saved by Jesus. You see, this is our first bit of assurance. When when every other religion is trying to prove that they're good enough or that they've done enough, Christianity point blank says, no, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. But because of Jesus, that's okay. Jesus is good enough. Jesus has done enough. Jesus assures us that we are safe to stop struggling, to stop trying to prove anything to to anyone, to stop trying to be something that we're not. And he doesn't just want to offer you assurance, but he wants to give you peace and life to the full through this assurance. In those times when you feel inadequate, Tired, scared, hurt, confused. Jesus says to us on the cross, Shh, it's okay. I have made it okay. And I love you. And in me, there is no condemnation. That is an assurance that we have today. Not a future assurance. It is a future assurance, but it is something that we hold on right now and we live in right now. Because we have total assurance in our salvation, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. But then we get to verse 3 and 4 where Paul seems to say something a bit strange. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can now live lives that obey God's law. So where before we were unable to obey God's law, we now can. That's what he means when he says the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And then in verses 5 to 9, he starts talking about how if we're in Christ, then we have, we'll have our mind set on things of the Spirit. But if we don't have the Spirit, then we don't belong to Christ. I think sometimes when we read this, we, we kind of run the risk of thinking, but what if what if I sin? What if there are times, and I, in my life I know there are lots of times, when perhaps my mind isn't set on things of the Spirit? Does that mean that I don't have the Spirit and therefore don't belong to Jesus? And so it takes us back to some of the doubts that were voiced earlier, right? How many times will God forgive my sin? Surely there's a limit. And if my works are evidence for my faith, then how many works are required and of what type? See, when we read these verses, we run the risk of thinking that Paul is saying, unless you're living a perfect life, then you mustn't have the Spirit. You mustn't belong to Christ. I want to say right now, that is not what he's saying. But it does raise an interesting point, right? Yesterday, Ray talked about how we operate in a mortal coil, how you know, we're, we're living lives saved, but still in a sinful world. And the reality is, even as Christians, we stuff up. Sin is still present in our lives. And if this is so, then do I really belong to Jesus? So we start right back at the begin, beginning beginning. Asking the question, how do I know? If I'm really saved, if Jesus really died for me, and now this Holy Spirit is living in me, empowering me to do what is good, to do what is godly, why do I keep sinning? But let me say, if you've had these questions, if you've asked these questions, if you're thinking them now or laying awake at night thinking these questions, you're not alone. You're not the first. You won't be the last. In fact, I would argue that it's because we're Christians that we ask these questions. If you weren't, you wouldn't be asking these questions, right? See, not only do we have total assurance in our salvation through what Jesus has done, but we have, salva- we have total assurance in our salvation. And this is point to not because we live perfect lives, but because of what the Spirit is doing in our imperfect lives. We have total assurance in our salvation, not because we live perfect lives, but because of what the Spirit is doing in our imperfect lives. Look what Paul says in Romans 7.15 and 20. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So other than this whole section here is super wordy. But do you see what Paul's saying? I, I believe that he's expressing his own personal ongoing struggle with sin. He wants to do what is good and godly. He doesn't desire to sin, but he continues to sin. And he's tormented by this struggle. Ray Glier actually puts it like this. I'm stealing a little bit from, from what he said in a previous talk I heard. He talks about a trolley that's got the bung wheel, you know, and as you're pushing it through and it just keeps going left, like you're just running into people left, right, and center, and you're like, it's not me, it's the trolley. <laughs> but we're like that. We're like that trolley. We want to go straight, but oh, I drift off, bang into someone. So then, what then? Are we, are, we, are we doomed to fail? That's where we have to read the end of chapter 7. Where he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That although we may struggle with sin, we're not governed by sin anymore. Because through Christ we're free from sin. And by the power of the Spirit, it's no longer our nature, our default to just sin. Actually... Paul talks in Romans 8 about how he's taken us out of the realm of flesh, out of the realm of sin, where that is our nature, where it's no longer our nature. And he brings us into the realm of the Spirit. What Jesus has done and what the Spirit is doing in us gives us the power to choose an alternative to sin. And look, if you struggle with this doubt, a clue that you have the Spirit dwelling in you, this is, how we, this is one of the ways we get assurance, is that it pleases us. To please Christ. It pleases us to please Christ. And this is a super important question that I that I think we need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis. Do I desire to please Jesus? Do I delight in God? In His Son? Because this is how we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is ministering to our hearts. We want to do what is good and godly and we're upset by the sin in our lives. But because of the assurance that we have in Jesus that what he has done is complete, we can come to God, repent, ask for forgiveness, and that he would help us overcome the sin in our lives. So I want to encourage you because over time as we dwell on things of the spirit, we begin to know and we and hear the voice of the spirit in our lives. It gets louder and louder. As we encourage it, convicting us and transforming us. And and slowly our entire posture turns away from things that displease God. This is the process of sanctification that I mentioned earlier. And it's not immediate. It's an ongoing process that I believe will not be perfected until Christ returns. It's gradual. But I also want to say it's not a passive transformation. We need to be part of that transformation. We need to be active. We respond to the Spirit's work in us by being proactive to his voice. We listen to that voice of conviction. So what is it to dwell on things of the Spirit? How how do we become attuned to his voice? I think it's the Sunday school answer. Read your Bibles. Spend time praying to God. Spend time in fellowship. Go to church. Go to GCs. Talk to one another about what God is doing in your life and what you can see God doing in other people's lives because they may not see it. Encourage and lift up one another. See, We need to be regularly filled with God's word so that we know God's word. So that we know when the Spirit is speaking to us, prompting us, guiding us to turn away from things of the flesh. Galatians 5 lists these things of the flesh. He says, uh, Paul says in that sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, conflict, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. For us today, I think, I think that might look like maybe turning away from porn. Stop crude joking, gossiping, taking drugs, fighting, partying, random hookups, backstabbing people just to climb the corporate ladder. When we live by the Spirit, we want to keep in step with the Spirit. We recognize what Jesus has done. We recognize what the Spirit is doing in us, and we respond actively. And then this is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are commendable attributes that I, I'm sure all of us want. And these are the things that the Spirit empowers us to do in the face of sin. And we do this not out of legalistic obedience, but have a joyful desire to please our God. This is what it means to be governed by the Spirit. Not that we are living perfect lives, but that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives are being transformed and perfected. But what if you're you're a Christian and you don't feel that pull? If you're sitting here and you're like, I ah, just my conscience doesn't convict me anymore. What if our desires our our desire to please God is actually less than our desire to please ourselves or others? Now, a bit of a gruesome story, but so in parts of Alaska there there's um a tribe of Eskimo people that hunt wolves in a very particular way. So what they do, they get a blade and they, they coat it in animal blood. They freeze it and then they coat it and coat it and coat it and keep coating it in animal blood until all of a sudden the blade is, um, hidden. Then they bury it in the ground with the blade up. Um, and what happens is the wolves will smell the blood. And so they'll come and they'll, they'll find this blood and they'll, they'll give it a lick and they're like, okay, blood, life giving, good. And so when, when, you know, they then start to lick faster and faster and faster. And eventually the frozen blood numbs their tongue. But in this process as well, their insatiable desire for the blood is just heightened to the point where eventually they lick through the blood and they reach the bare blade. But, and then they, but they're so overcome by this desire. They're so, their tongues are so frozen that they don't even notice when all of a sudden they're licking the razor sharp blade. And then to the point where eventually What they're actually, the way that they're fulfilling their desire, their insatiable appetite for blood is with their own blood. And so they're licking and bleeding, licking and bleeding, licking and bleeding. Until eventually they bleed to death. This is what sin does to our lives. When we put, when we set our mind on things of the flesh, when we set our mind on things of sin, we desensitize ourselves. When we suppress the voice of the Spirit, telling us that what we're doing is wrong, to turn away, we stray further and further away from the voice of God and deeper into sin. It starts off often as just a small sin at first. Or we say to ourselves, it's just this once. But then we do it again and again And again, until you can't hear that voice convicting you. You can't feel the tug of the spirit on your life. We can't see how it is slowly killing us, drawing us further and further away from our life giving God. This is what it is to have our minds set on things of the flesh. And when we do this, we shift where we look to for assurance to things that are incapable of giving us life, that giving us lasting insurance. And we walk through life so confused, so struggling with insecurity and hopelessness and doubt. And then we say, Jesus has abandoned me. God doesn't love me. No. We've turned our backs on God. We blocked out his loving voice that is trying to guide us. So we turn away from the one true God and put our hope and our trust and our assurance in things that are fragile and unstable, things that don't have the power, they don't have the capacity to give us lasting assurance. They may give us assurance for a day or two, but they fade. In fact, Paul tells us they invite death. And why do we do this? Why when we when God wants to offer us peace and life, why do we embrace fear and death? So I used to have mates who would uh try to convince me to, to do things I knew I shouldn't be doing. So I grew up in a Christian family as a Christian. Um but yeah, so they and they would say things like, Oh, come on, you've done it before. You know, what's gonna hurt just to do it one more time? And it used to work. I would justify it because of past sin. It's kind of like when you're trying to be healthy, right? You know, and you're like, okay, Monday morning, healthy Matt, let's do this, yeah. And then morning tea comes and there's like a tray of brownies. And you're like, devour that tray of brownies. You're like, ah, man. Next Monday, exactly, right? But often we're not like, we don't just go, ah, stuffed up. All right, healthy me starts now. I go, ah, what's the point of healthy me? right? Scrap that idea. I've stuffed up. Here's the thing. I think, I think with sin, we do a similar thing with guilt and shame. It tries to own us. It tries to say, why even bother trying? It'll tell you that you've stuffed up in the past, so there's no point. You are not good enough to have the love of God. You're not good enough to live godly lives. And so we end up back in this cycle. Where we're thinking that it's what we do that saves us, that it's what we do that gives us assurance, that it's what the world offers us that gives us assurance. We ignore the work of Jesus, we ignore the work that the voice of the Spirit in our lives, and we end up back in a pit of insecurity and doubt. Look what Romans eight twelve says: "So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh." See, this is such an important truth. When you're in debt, it means you owe something to someone. Before Christ, we had a sin debt. We were indebted to sin. And the only way to pay for that was with our lives. And the flesh tries to tell us that because you've given into it so many times before, it doesn't matter what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter what the Spirit's trying to do in your life right now. That it owns you. And that you are in debt to it. But Paul is saying... Now, he's he's crying out that this is a lie. He grabs our heads and he turns us to the cross. He says that debt has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. We can look to the flesh. We can look to our past sinfulness. We can look to the shame and guilt that we may feel, but say, I owe you nothing. I have assurance in Jesus. I have assurance in what the Spirit is doing in my imperfect life, where debt is not to the flesh, but to Christ. And the way we 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 thank him by honoring him with our lives. You see, this is the assurance that Jesus gives us through his death and resurrection. This is the assurance that's confirmed by the Holy Spirit in what he is doing. Verse 13 says that we, we put sin to death by the Spirit. So when sin tempts us to give into it, If we have our mind set on things of the Spirit, if we are in our Bibles reading, if we are praying, if we are fellowshipping with one another, the Spirit empowers us. It enables us to say no, to put sin to death. This is the life that God wants for us. And look, even when we do stuff up, the Holy Spirit then assures us that what we can do, that in Christ we have the ability to stand up, dust ourselves off and say Godly me starts now, not next week, now, today. The Spirit wants to be part of your life, bringing you life, breathing life into your bodies to assure you, to affirm you as who you are. The Holy Spirit wants to ground us in the love of God, the saving work of Jesus. He wants to assure you that you are a child of God. And this is my final point. You're doing amazing. Stay with me. I know it's the end of a long weekend. We have complete assurance in our salvation because we are beloved children of God. This is so, so, so important. Although everything, in, everyone may abandon us, disappoint us, reject us. God loves us and he loves us. He loved us when we hated him. He sent his own son to die for us. He sends his spirit to live in us, convicting us. And on top of it all, he adopts us. Our God is not a distant. We heard this this morning at the baptism. It was beautiful. He's not a distant, uninvolved God. He's so present in our lives. Look what verses 14 and the first part of 15 says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The whole idea of the Spirit convicting us and acting like that voice of conscience, telling you not to do something. Like the world will tell us that God's just being a killjoy. He's given us laws to suppress us, to stop us from having fun. He wants to restrict us and smother us. But no. God, as a loving Father, wants to protect us and give us life. That feeling of unease is because, quite frankly, when we're doing the wrong thing, we're not living life as we're meant to live it. Yesterday, Ray talked about how all of creation is groaning, how we are groaning. We're built for the new heaven, the new earth. We're built for more than what we have. And relying on things of this world just leave us empty and broken. This is the life of fear, whereas God wants a life of peace for us. To completely oversimplify, I think of it like two chairs, right? One's broken and the other one's perfectly good. You know that one's broken and you sit in it anyway. And then when you sit in it and it falls apart, you're like, Ah, what? Why did it break again? Because it's broken. We've got a perfectly good chair. We have a perfectly good alternative. See, the thing that the rest of the world doesn't have, they don't have the alternative. They may know that the chair is broken, but they're lost. They don't know that there's anything more. Whereas we have the alternative. We know that God wants more for us. He wants a better life for us. We need to embrace it, own it, actively live in it. Jesus died to free us from this life of fear and death. The Holy Spirit resides in us and takes us out of that life. And the Father has reached in and claimed us and adopted us as his children. Look at what the second part of verse 15 says, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul's painting this beautiful image of a threefold assurance. What Christ has done for us, what the Spirit is doing doing in us, and the reality of who we are as children of God as co-heirs with Christ. This idea of being children of God is something that I think we usually pass over. I think we, we often think that it's kind of weird Christian Christianese Christian language. It's more imagery, a metaphor than it is reality. So we doubt it and we don't live in it. We ask the question, am I really a child of God? And look, for some people, this, this may not actually be an assuring thing. You may have broken relationships with your parents with your father, that is filled with hurt and disappointment. If that's you, I'm really sorry. But again, that points us to what God isn't, but that he is a loving God, that he is a perfect God, a perfect father who wants to love you, who wants to care for you, who doesn't want to hurt you, but wants to protect you. When Paul talks about adoption here, he's referring to like the Roman style of adoption, the Greco-Roman style, which essentially, um, when a father either didn't have children or didn't have sons or he didn't have sons that he liked, he would adopt another son that he approved of. And what he would do when he adopt them, when this legally approved, that son would, would lose all attachment to his previous life. All debts, his name, everything would be transferred taken away and he would be transferred over to the father's household where he would then become a rightful and legal heir to whatever the father had. He was equal with the biological sons. In fact, even more so, where a biological son could be disowned, adoption was irreversible. When we accept Christ, we not only have the Holy Spirit living in us, but we literally, physically become Children of God. This is a reality. I know yesterday again Ray talked about how our adoption won't be complete till then, but we are adopted now. We do have that option, the opportunity to cry out to our Father. We've done nothing to earn this adoption. We we, we don't deserve it, and yet God, our loving Father, in his amazing mercy, takes us lost, helpless. Sin-laden sinners and adopts us. When God adopts us, all of our connection to who we were in sin is forgotten. It is wiped clean. Our rebellion against God, forgotten. Completely cancelled. Our identity is completely transformed. Our names are changed from one who is opposed to God to one who is a child of God. And like a Roman adopted child, our position is... Cannot be changed. We have complete assurance in our adoption as children of God. What we are to God is like what my sons, Oliver and Malachi, are to me. When, 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 But just even better. When God sees them, he doesn't see these illegitimate adopted sons who you're just lucky. No, he sees like, this is my son. This is my daughter. I love you. I would die for you. I have died for you. And I want what is best for you now, today. When we have this kind of relationship with God, we have a relationship that allows us to come freely, openly, intimately to our Heavenly Father. In our times of doubt, in our times of pain, in whatever the situation, we we can cry out, Abba, Father. Just as Jesus cried out, we are invited to have that same level of intimacy And so when God, when we come to God with this level of intimacy as our father, we're expressing a total dependence. It's like Ollie, whenever he needs me, you know, he's totally dependent on me. So he cries out, daddy, daddy. Love it when he does that. And he does it when he needs me to pick him up or when he's scared or confused or lost and he's not sure how he's gotten tangled up in the, in the curtains. But he does this because he's totally dependent on me, but he totally trusts me. Even when he doesn't know what I'm doing, I can throw him in the air and you just, he's just got to smile. There's no fear because he trusts me to catch him. I could drop him, but that's where God and I are different. Like, <laughs> there may be a couple other things, but God doesn't drop us. That's the point. You see, Ollie's completely dependent on me, which results in complete assurance. Our Heavenly Father is perfect, faithful, and good, and loves us. So when we approach God with this childlike dependency, he gives us complete assurance. That he loves us and is doing what is best for us, even when we don't understand what is happening. So when we find ourselves doubting, when we lay in bed at night asking ourselves, how could I ever be assured of my position? How in today's age, you know, does the Spirit actually love me? Does he live in me? Does God love me? Accept me? Is my salvation assured? We can say yes. A resounding yes. We can turn to Romans 8 and know that today we have complete assurance. Not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We know that we have complete assurance not in living a perfect life, but in the Spirit, in the work of the Holy Spirit, what he is doing in our imperfect lives, convicting us of sin so that we can live godlier lives. And we know that we have complete complete assurance as God's beloved children, bought by the blood of Jesus, affirmed by the Holy Spirit, and irreversible. In this assurance, we can cry out to our Heavenly Father in our pain and anxiety and know that he loves us. Today and tomorrow. Nothing can change that. Our identity in God is assured. Our, self, our salvation is assured. Let me finish with the words of Romans eight thirty-eight to 39 For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor anything present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our truth today. We need to own this and live in light of this truth. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just, we come before you. We thank you. God, we thank you that in our doubt, in our insecurity, that we find assurance in you, Lord, that we can look and see what Christ has done for us. We can see what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, Lord, and we can know that we can cry out to you that you love us, and that you are working all things out for the good of those who love you. I pray, Lord, that as we, as we leave this weekend, as we head back to our jobs and to our lives outside of um, this weekend away, that we live life in light of this truth, in light of this assurance. God, I pray that you just that your love abound in us and it be overflowing in us, that we want other people who we can see that are hurting to also experience this love and assurance that you give us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you are working in our lives today, tomorrow, and into the future, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.